they see the the panel talks and they see like the awards and you know the press but they don't see the the knockbacks right welcome to another episode of over the leadership and today i have to get the pleasure the joy of talking to a friend of mine who is an investor, consultant, board advisor, someone who's worked in fintech and that DNI space for a decade plus. And she's also a founder of her own company, Anil Consultancy. She does a lot of different things. She's won multiple awards and she's someone who is a trailblazer in the culture when it comes to investment, uh, financial wealth. I have Chanel and Santa House. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you, Sophie. So pleased to be speaking to you. Younger Chanel, between six, six and 12. Oh, you like men? Digging deep. <laughs> so it's really funny. As soon as you mentioned it, the first memory that popped to mind was being asked to come to the living room when my parents had guests over to dance for them. So I used to love to dance. And that that was our thing, like entertainment in our household when guests would come over. It'd be like, oh, Chanel, come and show them your new dance routine that you've been working on. And then, like, me, like, super confident at that age, yeah, would just run in and, like, put on this showcase of this new, like, dance routine that I've been working on without any fear, just right in there, putting on a show. And, yeah, it's it's interesting, actually. I just think, wow, like, being... Memory I'm telling you about, I was probably about seven, but being seven and fearless and just sort of rocking in and dancing and then leaving yeah I didn't I didn't yeah I had no fear whatsoever that was me like I think young Chanel was like super outgoing yeah really fearless probably beyond her years you know I'm the first first born of three my mum and so if you are first generation migrant you understand that that also comes with a lot of responsibilities and so yeah I would say I was seven, but probably like 15. <laughs> you're honest, but um, <laughs> you're laughing because, yeah, you know it. I know it. I know what you're talking about. Um, exactly. You know, that extra level of responsibility to do all the great things that they came to the UK so that you could do. Mm. Yeah. So, so, so that was young me. I think young Chanel was super confident, very much a creative. So I was into dancing, loved fashion. So I'd have this book that I recently found when I was moving, actually. My mum kept it, I didn't realise, that had all my sketches, my fashion design sketches in there from when I was a kid. Because when I was younger, that's what I wanted to to do. That's what I wanted to be, a fashion designer. When did that change? Oh, I was sat down at the age of, I think it was about 18 and a half or 19, I sat down by my dad and he said, we've given you some space to do this uh, creative fun thing, which was the terms that he used, to do this creative fun thing for a while. And he's like, now it's time to get serious. This is not going to give you the future that you need. You need to be an accountant. You know, you need to go and be an accountant. That's a stable career and you'll do well being an accountant. And I sort of sat there and I, you know, I looked up to my dad, so I was like, okay, yep, super obedient, just nodded my head, and that was it. And then I, so I I had enrolled in the London College of Fashion, so I was actually there, then I dropped out, and then switched, and then went to Brunel and studied business and accounting. Wow. And um, yeah, the rest has been history. Yeah. What was it about fashion that you liked so much? What about fashion? Do you know, I... There's something, and I think I still carry that, there's something about putting on an item of clothing or for me, like shoes, right? And automatically I feel 10 feet taller. And it's really weird, but it gives me that feeling like it can automatically change my mood. 
And so I associated fashion with feeling good and allowing people to feel good because it made me feel better for some reason. But yeah, it did. Like I, for me, it was all about designing pieces that would make people feel great and good about themselves, right? And feel like they were a peacock in the rooms (laughs) that they entered in. Yeah, which is how I felt like, you know, when I'd go and I'd save up and I'd buy those pair of shoes and I'd put them on and I'd enter a room and I'll I'll feel like I'm the peacock in the room. And I was like, yeah, you know, for me, that is what fashion is about. So were you the one when you were growing up? Because if you were, were already enrolled into London School of Fashion, assuming that college, at school, you were doing all of that. So were you like designing clothes for your friends, family, all that kind of stuff as well? So I was really fortunate in that I grew up with a group of female cousins and we're all a similar age. Mm-hmm. And so whenever there would be like a Ghanaian independence, like dance coming up or like a family occasion, we'll all get together and, you know, I'll sit down and I'll sketch out all our outfits and then we'll go to the tailors and, you know, I'd explain and say, you know, I want this to look like this. So kind of that's how I got to test it out a little bit. Or every now and then, like my mum's really good with a sewing machine. So sometimes I'll design something and I'll be like, oh, can you help me to like put this together? So I'd experiment, I remember being really young and experimenting with like putting a skirt together and yeah, little pieces like that. When your dad told you that and you listened, how was that journey for you? Yes. To let go of your or your dream that you wanted to do for so long and switch into something else? Do you know, I actually wasn't that sad about it, which is interesting. I was like, okay, fine. Um, I understand where he was coming from um, and what he wanted for me. And then I guess when I sat down and I looked at people that were doing well around me, you know, they, they were sort of in business, right? Um, Mm. or they were like athletes or musicians. I cannot sing to save my life, right? I have no (laughs) musical talent. (laughs) I I had a stint at like playing the trumpet when I was in secondary school, but it didn't go beyond there. I said, yeah, okay, he's older, he's wiser, he's more sensible, and so fine. And I got on with it. And to be honest, I did enjoy business, studying business, actually. I really did. The accounting side, less so. But business management, how businesses come together, thinking about the different facets of like and different components of, you know, building a business and the things you need to think about. I actually really enjoyed. Yeah, I think if I would have went into business and I didn't enjoy it, Mm. I probably would have had a bit more resentment. But because I did, I didn't have that. Which is good. I think it's always quite interesting when you think back to what you were doing previous to where you are right now. And the fact that you can be like, actually, you know what? They're saying what I do or what you do now, you absolutely love, which is definitely quite a good one then. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like the creativity is still there to a certain extent. And so I style myself, you know, I am interested in fashion. Like I buy pieces that, that I like, or I have things made for myself from an idea I've had in my mind, you know? And so that's kind of how I tap into that that side of things. But I think I am not in the world of business and finance and investment and thinking, oh, you know, I wish I was a fashion designer. Actually, I really love what I do now. And I don't think that I convinced myself to love it. I think another opportunity was presented and actually I, I, I enjoyed that too. How did you get into the world of business, finance, investments? Because one, that's not a world that you see a lot of women in. That's not a lot. That's not a world you see a lot of black women in, in particular. And not only are you just in that world, you are killing it in that world. So, how did you actually start your journey? I done a, a sandwich course at university, which allowed me to take a year out to get some work experience and do an internship. And I was fortunate enough to do it with an investment banking house, Society General. And it was great for me because, you know, it was at the time of the last recession, 2007. And so being within an investment house and kind of seeing how they were responding to the market 
and everything was so fascinating to me. I think I was very fortunate in that I was offered a job by another investment firm before I even graduated. So my path post, yeah, post-graduation was quite easy. So I was offered a job. So I graduated. I think I even started working before I even graduated. Once I handed in my dissertation, I was like, okay, right, I'm just going to go and work. But the realisation really soon after was that it wasn't what I thought it was. And very early on, I realised culture and environment was very, very important to me. So this was what, 2000 at the time now, this was probably about 2010. Mm-hmm. And we, our office was stationed on the corner of the trading floor, right? Um, most investment houses probably don't even have that anymore, but you know, it's very different back then. One of three women on the whole floor and the only black woman. And this is a whole floor of like hundreds, right, of people. And so it wasn't the best experience. I remember having to walk through, because I used to have to walk through the whole trading floor and being catcalled, being whistled at. Like, this is the start of my day every single day, right? And then you get there and you're amongst people that are very different to you, which I don't mind. I don't mind being different in a room, but I think when it's coupled with like, rudeness and the profanity and the experiences that I experienced, I was just like, I need to get the heck out of here ASAP. So I tried to stick at it for as long as I could, but, you know, it got to a certain point and I was like, I'm not doing this anymore. And I quit. I remember I quit and I didn't have a plan. I didn't have a backup job. I hadn't even started looking for anything. I quit. And I wasn't concerned, considering fears after a recession, right? I should be looking for stability, but I wasn't concerned. Like I remember I walked out of the building and I literally leaped in the air like George Jefferson in the <laughs> tiny old, like, I remember that moment. <laughs> I was, I felt so free to be out of there, so excited. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was great. But I remember speaking to everyone. Firstly, family. How am I going to tell them I've walked away from this investment banking job, right? Like, in 2010, yeah, they're just not going to understand it. Friends didn't understand it because at the time, when you graduate, it's not easy to get a job, especially in finance, right? Let alone an investment firm. And then, you know, I had this job and I just walked away and didn't have anything lined up. But I think that moment taught me a lot about myself in that I was willing to take risks. Mm. I was willing to take risks and I was comfortable being uncomfortable. And I also knew I probably wouldn't settle just for the sake of. So I actually realized that about myself. I remember speaking to people and they were like, do you know you're mad? Like, what's wrong with you? Like, who does that? And I was like, well, I have and I've Mm. done it. and. So what? I think for the first time, that was when I realised how my mind works, slightly different to others around me and my risk tolerance level. And actually that I wasn't willing to accept or stay in spaces that didn't really work for me, if I'm being honest. Even, you know, with next to no work experience, I was just willing to kind of walk away and let it all go. I wasn't there for that long. Honestly, I think I just about made it to six months. And then I was like, I'm done. Like, after six months, I was like, I'm out. That's too fair. That's still a long, a long time and to then, come in every day and be dealing with that every single day as you're walking in. That's a lot. Yeah, it is. It is. And you know what's really interesting? I think I knew I hated it, but I don't think I hated it I didn't realize that I hated it because of the catcalling and the whistling. I think I just hated it because I thought I hated the job. And I had a moment of realization probably a few years ago when I was like, actually, beyond me not enjoying the job that I was doing, that environment was terrible. But I think when you are in it, and I think a lot of black people, right? And actually just a lot of people of color do this. We develop this coping mechanism. And we kind of put on our rose-coloured glasses, right? And we do this just so we can get through. 
And because if you were to pay attention and, and be like taking everything, you'll be angry every single day. And who wants to live that way? So without even realizing it, I think like our brains just kicks into like a coping mechanism state where you sort of drown out a lot of the negativity that's around you. And I think for a lot of professionals, that's a microaggression. But actually in my case, it wasn't micro, it was very direct. And until you get to a certain point and then something in you goes, no, that's it. It's enough. Can't take anymore. But yeah, I, I think it was probably one of those moments. And then you carried on navigating. It's interesting when you talk about you realizing your risk tolerance. And then I think back to the seven-year-old Chanel coming out and performing and being fearless. It sounds like from a very young yeah. age, you've had that inside of you. And it just took certain environments to bring it out. I think you're right, actually. I think about sort of my background and the school I went to. You know, I grew up in Hackney before Hackney became cool. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> I went for a period, like, probably about 10 years ago where I was like, oh, you know, people are like, oh, you live in Hackney? And they're like, oh, that's so cool. And I was like, really? You know, it took me a minute to, like, fully accept it. But apparently Hackney is this cool place now. You know, I grew up in Hackney before it was cool. And so I didn't go to the best school. I went to a decent university, but I didn't go to the best schools. I think they say you are a product of your environment, but I don't think I am, if I'm being honest. I think I something in me probably always knew that I wanted to do things differently and not be like the people around me. I don't know where that comes from, Sope. I, I'm I'm not sure, to be honest. I'm the first in my family to, you know, my immediate family, including my parents, to graduate, right? And, and still the only that has gone on to university. And so I don't know where it comes from. I don't know. I think sometimes we're just born with something that just says you can do things or whatever you want to do to a certain extent. And I say to a certain extent because the def the, the imposter syndrome is definitely there, right? I'm not going to say I'm this fearless human being because I definitely fear and worry like everybody else. Yeah, I, I don't know where that comes from. I, I don't know where that comes from. But I, I think when I look back and I reflect on kind of the people I went to school with and kind of, yeah where we've ended up today, I, I think we're, yeah, we've all taken very different paths. If you haven't already, can you please follow the podcast? It really helps us grow and it tells the apps that it's the podcast worth listening to, which the fact that you're listening to means that it is and other people need to know about it. In Apple Podcast, if you click the three dots in the top right of your app, Look for the follow button and click on it. And in Spotify, the follow button should be just below the show's artwork. Now let's get back into today's episode. So you've gone from having what people might view as a dream investment role. You decide to let that go and without knowing what you're stepping into next, knowing that you were going to be okay. You've got family and friends around you asking what are you doing? How do you keep on navigating and stepping into the opportunities that came your way and you also created? So I'm a person of faith. And so I am a firm believer that our steps are ordered. And, you know, whether you're a person of faith or you are spiritual or believe in an energy force or whatever it is, I, I honestly do believe that our path has been laid out. And I think I've always believed that. And so I always thought, as long as I turn up and I work really hard, it's going to be okay. And I know that I am like determined enough and hardworking enough to always be able to find a job. I'm willing to roll up my sleeves and do whatever I, I kind of, I've always been that person. So I've always known deep down that I will be okay. And in the moments where you know, I've lost a little bit of faith. I'm a human being at times and, you know, and I will get a reminder that actually, you know, I'm not alone in this and it is going to be okay. And so that allows me to keep going. That allows me to take um, these insane risks. 
throughout my my life because I guess th- that wasn't the only time, right? I've done it multiple times <laughs> since then. And I think I've been quite fortunate in that it hasn't always been smooth sailing, but I always end up being okay. Are they insane risks or is that how the world views them? Oh, good, oh, good, good question. Yeah, it's true. Actually, why have I labeled them as insane risks, right? That's just me taking in other people's views, right? Uh, you know, and opinions of, of what I've chosen to do, which actually, if you look at my track record, it's probably normal for me, <laughs> but less normal for kind of the majority of people. But yeah, they, they may not be insane, actually. It depends on, on you know, from whose perspective, I exactly. guess. You know? Yeah, that's, that's, that's the reality of life, isn't it? Depends who's looking at you, yeah. what they're comparing to, and and everything else. And you talk about your your track record. I mean, from leaving that role to all the different things you've accomplished, it's been it's been a lot. And I guess a lot of people right now they see you getting up, you speaking. They see the I want to say the fame side of things right now. They see all that kind of stuff. But behind all of that, it's been an incredible journey baked in a lot of experience. And I just want to hear you like talk about that experience. Like, how did that actually come about from what you just described right now to get into that space where you're navigating in? Absolutely. So just a quick story. So I left the you know investment banking. I didn't really make make it in that world. I quit, but you know, I decided to get into management consulting soon after. And, you know, I didn't go to an IV. I think I was fortunate in getting into, you know, investment banking because of my internship. But, you know, I didn't go to an Ivy League university. Brunel was decent, but it's not, you know, like Russell Group. Consultant houses back then wanted you to come from that background. So, I remember applying and applying and not really getting anywhere. And so I said, okay, let me be creative about how I do this. So this is back in 2010. So I started tracking down the owners of the consulting houses and the CEOs, and I would just write to them directly. And I'd write to them and I'd say, hey, you don't know me, but you know, after meeting me, like you would love me. Like, this is what motivates <laughs> me and this is what I can do. Honestly, this is what I can do for your organization. Energy. And I'll be like, no, I know it. I was like, it was madness. <laughs> it was madness when I think about it. I was like, well, you know, I I know it's kind of ballsy, but, you know, you kind of need to go for what you want. And I remember um, CEO of the first consulting company I worked for called State of Flux, founder, uh, well, the owner, and, and uh, I think now he's, probably executive chairman, you know, he's no longer the CEO, but he responded and he was like, you're super ballsy. And so I'm going to meet you just based on that. He was like, who done, no one's done this. So of course I'm going to meet you. And so we met and we went through the interview process and, you know, it took me through the interview process. Yeah. That's kind of how my career in, in management consulting started. It's really interesting because I feel like when I speak to a lot of friends or peers that are black who have kind of gone into the corporate world, you know, they they had to kind of conform. And I never did. You know, I turned up Sope to this interview of red hair. I had red hair. You know, I turned up being, as I say, super hackney. <laughs> you know, red hair. I was like, yeah, okay. Full of like spice. This is who I am. This is being who I am got me to the door. And so when I'm going through this process, it's conti- it's very important for me to be who I am throughout this, right? Which I remember there was another manager in the firm who's a black guy, who's a really good friend of mine, someone I look up to that's basically like a brother, a Wusu Koto. He was just, I remember he, he would just, he was standing back just looking at me and laughing. He was like, who is this person and where did she come from? Like, she's just operating so differently but it worked. It, it did work. But I guess, yeah, since then, the rest has been history. So State of Flux was great because it very much operated like a startup. 
but we had like a global reach. So I was fortunate enough to be kind of sent all over the world. And I used to lead on all the international development projects and stuff. And it was fantastic. It got to a certain point and I was like, I've been here for a couple of years. I'm not learning anymore and it's time to go. And for some reason I thought going to a bigger consulting house would help me or be something different, a new experience. So then I went to Grant Thornton And what I quickly realized was the job that I was doing at State of Flux was now being done by 10 people at Grant Thornton. Wow. Um, I know, exactly. Startup versus big corporate. So I was like, this is not working for me. I am very, very bored here. I need to not necessarily be in constant high pressured environments, but I need to be doing a lot. I'm used to operating in this way and yeah, left. And when I was at Grant Thornton, actually it was, when I decided to leave, it was kind of linked to the timing of the last Black Lives Matter in the UK. And yeah, I think kind of macro uh, macroeconomic factors and Black Lives Matter movement and me just not being challenged and me just being very different to everybody else there. I think I just got to the point again and I said, no, this is not working out. And then I said, I'm going to do my own thing. And then kind of reflecting back to the how my steps are ordered, I really believe this. So I left and I didn't, again, have... I had a high level plan. I, you know, I was like, I'm going to start nail consulting. So I remember I, I went on company's house and I registered, but I had like no super plan about how I was going to get my first set of clients or anything. But I was like, I'm just going to go and get out there and see what happens. And it just so happens that my first clients were the guys that were building Tandem Bank. And back then, this was like when the neo-banks were kind of being rebirthed in the UK, right? Monzo had just got their license. Stalin was just about coming about. So we were all kind of doing it together. And it's a very niche skill set to have. And it was a very close circle. So kind of going with them from start through to kind of go getting their license and going to market, you become one of the people or one of the organisations that know how to do this. And so quite fortunately, I someone else moves on and they're working with another person that's building the neo bank or digital bank. And then they're like, oh, well, you know, Chanel, the team, they can come and help. They know how to do this. And that's pretty much how it's been. And I, I think I've been very lucky on that front. And then I guess the transition into investing came about, it was purely driven by mission, if I'm being honest. I got to a certain point and I was like, this is great that, you know, I'm doing this super cool thing. But I was the only person that looked like me in the rooms I was in, you know, even though it was startup land. But it was a very, you know, to be in a position to build a bank, right? You have a certain level of privilege associated with you. And so, again, I'm in these rooms with these guys that are building, you know, doing these awesome things and building these banks. But I'm the only one that looks like me. You know, and then later on down the line, what I started to do was be intentional about only like bringing in women to work with me and hiring women so that I'll have women alongside me in these board meetings. Right. So that I could try and normalize that this is what it should look like, even though we weren't permanent members of the team or we weren't employees. The fact that we were there to me made a difference. And the fact that I could bring another woman in with me made a difference. And I was like, this is great. But again, something in me was like, okay, what next? And I was like, well, there's no black and brown people that I'm working with. And I've got all these years and years of experience. I want to take my experience and, you know, work with people and help people to be able to do this, right? And then, um, yeah, I I just set intentions, Sophie. I literally just set intentions. I'd done nothing about it. I was like, this is what I want to do. I want to be more active in working with black people, brown people and helping them to build organizations. Right. And so I done that, set set it out there. And then a few months later, one of the guys at Cornerstone Partners reached out and was like, Hey, love kind of what it is that you've been doing. There's an opening. Would you like to join? And I was like, okay, cool. But I know nothing about investing. Right. I'll be like, I'm not an investor, but I know how to, 
build businesses. I know how to work with startups, like, you know, so that's where I can add value. And they were like, okay, cool. And I was like, and, and I can run organizations. So I joined Cornerstone Partners and that was my step into the world of investing. And then probably like two months after, two or three months after I joined Cornerstone Partners, because we knew that we had plans to eventually raise this VC fund. They were like, well, hey, whilst a subset of us go in and focus on putting the foundations in place to raise this VC fund, Chanel will be th- will think you'll be great to kind of run Cornerstone Partners and take on the role as head of the organization and take us to market even more and lead on investments. So I was like, sure. And so that was my baptism into the world of investment. I had to quickly upskill. And yeah, I say baptism because it was a baptism, definitely was. Uh, but I, I learned a lot very quickly. Yeah, the, the rest has been history, but it's been a, I would say for the most part, a wonderful journey because it's allowed me to kind of lean into what I care about mm. and take kind of my experience and lend that to kind of what I care about, which for me is providing access. And so investment to me is providing access via capital, right? And so, yeah. Wow. It's interesting when I hear you talking about your journey, a number of times you just talked about, okay, I'm not sure I can do this, but I know I can do this. Like you've never let what you yeah. can't do be the ceiling that you put on your willingness to step into something new. And mm-hmm. even like you talk about that cornerstone, baptism of fire, well, Chanel, don't step into this, be the, be the face of it, step into investments. I don't know nothing about this, but okay. Like that willingness to be able to feed your curiosity and step into stuff, which for me goes back into that courage, has been super important. And I really wanted to highlight that because it's so easy to see people be like, oh my gosh, your journey it sounds remarkable. Well, I'm not sure I can do that. But a foundation of, of has always been for you the willingness to try something different and the willingness to be different. And that's what's opened those opportunities for you as well, sounds like. Absolutely. You're spot on. Always curious to learn new things. And when I feel like I'm not learning anymore, it's time to try something new. And just kind of not being afraid to one, be honest and say, look, I don't know, right? But I'm going to get to know because I am hungry to learn and I'm curious. And yeah, just kind of being honest. I remember so in the pandemic, to Cornerstone, it's investing in early stage startups, but a lot of businesses, you know, as we all know, were firstly impacted. It was terrible. And so I remember being like, okay, guys, what can we do to, to help? And so we came up with this, this idea to start these like webinars to help not only startups, but just SMEs in general, right? Because I was like, this is bad, like... Families are dependent on their livelihood and, you know, it's now been turned upside down. So anyway, but they were like, okay, this is great, Chanel, but you're going to go and like, you're going to be the host. <laughs> you're going to host these panels. And and I was like, oh my God. And I think I'd forgotten about seven-year-old me being like fearless and running into the living room and dancing, but I was petrified. Okay, like, I remember. If, I I mean, I was petrified. Like, if you look at the videos, you'd be like, oh, yeah, you know, great, Chanel, she's good at this. No. Before, and this was, I was at home, remember, like, even still, turning on a Zoom camera to be that host, I literally, five seconds before we went live, I would have my covers over my head, like, shaking like being given a pep talk by one of the guys, like being like, you can do this, you know? And I'm like, no, I can't do it. I can't, I can't. And I was, yeah, I was so scared. So, so scared. But yeah, it's interesting. And and I had another moment actually when I was reflecting back on kind of the fact that I'm able to talk quite freely now. I remember two years ago doing an interview with the BBC it was one camera sopping, one camera, one reporter. I couldn't even get my name out. They were like, what's your name? Sh- 
take 10 before I could get my full name out. That's how bad I was. <laughs> I was really, really bad. But for some reason, and I knew I was going to be scared, but I, to your point, I just said yes anyway. And yeah, I guess probably by like take 30, we got it. But yeah, it wasn't easy, man. You mentioned earlier you had a, you know what your life's mission is. What is that? I have to bridge the gap. So this is what I've been told I need to do. And I guess for the last maybe five years, I've explored the different ways in which I can bridge the gap. And so bridging the gap for me right now is about providing access by means of space, by means of capital. But there is a gap and there is a divide we, we all know. But I feel like my role is to play, yeah, to be very proactive and as loud as I can be and as instrumental as I can be in bridging that gap. And yeah, it's about just playing a role in trying to make the world a better place. And so I started with, you know, providing access to capital for black and diverse founders, right? Startups, because for me, until we give these phenomenal founders that are black and brown the opportunity to see through their ideas and build up their startups so that they can showcase as being like, not even necessarily the next set of unicorns, but just showcase success, provide jobs. And we normalize that that is also what great looks like. We're not really going to change things and, you know, we won't be able to bridge the gap. But then, you know, more recently, I've been thinking about the planet and, you know, preservation and climate and also thinking about the fact that it's something that's on the forefront of a lot of people's minds. And again, it comes back to how do we provide access and space to these phenomenal founders that are playing a role in trying to solve this problem? And again, not being an expert in climate, right? Or sustainability. I know it I know a bit, but by no means would I say an expert. So I'm on a journey again to see how I can play a role in bridging that gap. So people tend to have, I'm gonna say that like big, audacious kind of goals. And there are times when those goals can feel overwhelming. How do you yes. deal with that? Oh my gosh, like, yeah. They say if your goal doesn't completely drown you, it's probably not big enough. And definitely, like, mine completely floors me um, in the fact that what I'm trying to do is, like, move the market, right, and, and shape, change what the future should look like. And so that is a huge, huge goal. But I tend not to think or reflect back on the bigger picture, but really take one step at a time. It's like people say, you know, it's game of inches. Mm. So all you do is, you know, move forward an inch at a time. And then you look back over a period of years and actually you realise that it's compound impact, right, and effect, and actually it's all contribute towards you being able to move something. Because I think if I woke up every morning and I focused on the big goal, right, is to, which is to completely change the landscape and provide access to those that do not have and to kind of make the world a better place, it is a lot for one person to do. And then you think, how the heck am I going to do that by myself? But, you know, I focus on the small things that I can do every single day. And then eventually I believe that it will all align. And God willing, in 10 years, I can look back and then take stock and see, you know, what has moved and what change has been made. But I try not to reflect on that every single day. No, I can't. It's too overwhelming. <laughs> well, I love, I love that mixture of the recognition of the overwhelm with practical steps to keep on moving forward. Like you said, Game of Inches, day in, day out, you have that big thing that you're kind of working towards. And you've won a lot of awards. You've worked in some great organizations. You run your own organization. I'm curious, what's your proudest moment so far in your career? 
Ooh. In my career. Do you know what? I would say something a bit more generic. I'm proud that I'm still going. I think I'm I'm proud that I'm still going. I am proud that I'm still moving forward. Because life is tough, you know? Mm. And um I think as you said earlier, like people see all the people see the glamorous side of things right they see the the panel talks and they see like the awards and you know the press but they don't see the the knockbacks right and and the down moments that happen often which can put people off right and and it has done for many but i think the fact that i've continued to pick myself up and keep on going I think that's what I'm super proud of. And I think I don't say enough to myself or actually even out loud, but I am proud of me. I'm proud of the fact that Chanel continues to keep moving forward despite all of the challenges, right? So yeah, that I, I guess that's what I'm proud of. I, I wouldn't put it down to any one single thing. Yeah, and rather on the fact that I continue to move forward an inch at a time. I should love to. I am proud of me. I think that's something that we do not, generally speaking, say to ourselves a lot. So that's actually something that's really powerful. Yeah, we we don't. And I definitely do not at all. I'm too focused on moving forward to do a stop take and be (laughs) like, oh, Chanel, well done. You know, it's, it's always, oh, Chanel, you've done this thing, but okay, how can you do it better? Or actually, you should have done that to be better. And we, yeah, we need to, we need to pause more. I need to pause more and say, Chanel, well done. Yeah, we should, we should all make that a habit actually to say to ourselves, well done, I'm proud of you and what you've done, big or small. Apart from when you first started, are there other moments that you've learned some lessons in your journey where even in those moments you, you felt like you couldn't carry on and you had to force yourself to pick yourself back up again? Yeah. Oh, so many. What example do I give? So I think people see my journey with Cornerstone as being one that seems to be very glamorous. But in fact, it's probably been one of the hardest journeys I've been on in life. You know, I I joined with my heart on my sleeve, right? mission first as I mentioned not being an experienced investor or knowing very much to me it was all about doing good and playing a role in changing the narrative and providing access to capital for you know black and brown founders a group that continues to be kind of overlooked and so yeah I went in hot like hot on sleeve like and it was tough really really tough for a number of reasons not everybody understood what it is that we were trying to do and that what I was trying to do. So I, I joined and soon after when I became the head of Cornerstone Partners, I this small thing called the pandemic happened, right? And that completely flipped everything upside down. And at the time we were 28 people in Cornerstone, 28 per- people in Cornerstone. So that in itself was a challenge for me in trying to continue to navigate the ship keep it afloat when to everyone the world was falling apart Uh, people had personal challenges you know we had a couple of deaths within uh, amongst family members not too dissimilar to kind of rest of the world but it, it was really really tough and then I guess also to point out so Cornerstone Partners was the first investment firm in the UK focused on investing in black and diverse founders right so pandemic happened and then George Floyd happened soon after and everyone everyone wanted to speak to us or we were seen to be the organization that should have all the answers and that is a lot of weight to carry Mm. you know it is a lot of weight to carry uh, because we don't have all the answers and not all black and brown people are the same or have different needs and to consistently have to be seen to helping, you know, helping our own is fine. But when you have all these corporates and press outlets and all these other people that are coming to you and saying, you know, what do I do? And it's constant. 
you're dealing with that, but then you're also dealing with the the challenges internally within our own organization, right? And individuals going through difficult challenges, myself included, and you're having to navigate that, put on this mask whilst you are consistently having to face off to the external world and answer everything can be seen as the person and organization that has all of the answers. It's tough. It's really, really tough, man. And so, yeah, by the end of 2021, I will be honest and say I was broken. I absolutely was broken. There, yeah, I was probably 20% of who I am. I was completely shattered, completely broken. And so in true Chanel fashion, I, I, I jumped on the plane and I said, I need a holiday. And so I went to Barbados because I thought, you know, some sun and, and, and sea would help. Yeah, I booked a 10-day holiday and I did come back for half a year. Because <laughs> that's how long I needed to stay away. <laughs> Honestly, people love, but, you know, it was survival for me. I didn't want to come back to the UK until I felt like I was myself and, and I was whole again. And... Yeah, for me, that took six months. As people say, you know, people say, oh, you know, I go to the mountains. I actually went to the mountains to heal because it was a lot. Wow. When you, what was it that clicked for you that let you know that you were, you were back, you were healed, you were whole again in a sense? So I got to this point, you know, and, and people who experience serious burnout will we'll know you get to this point where you are super jaded you know you fall into the space of like negativity right and and not really having much motivation to want to do anything and i think when i i i, I knew i was better when I was feeling a lot more positive, I had more of a positive outlook on the world, on people, on things. For me, that that was a sign that I was I I had healed, and and I guess some of the things that I was really angry about and quite hurt about, I had let go, and they weren't consuming me in the way that they were previously. Mm. I think that's when I knew power of healing so important so now you've healed your back what's next for you so I continue to do the work that I do with Cornerstone Partners but as I mentioned I'm now on this journey where I am educating myself about climate and sustainability you know i've done a few investments in this space so i do know the space fairly well but i think people always say wise people know they don't know everything then mm. i definitely don't know everything and so now i'm on this journey right where i am focusing my efforts and the access and space that i can provide by backing founders that are playing a role in making the world more sustainable and a better place. So that's the journey I'm on now. And I don't have it mapped out, but it's a journey I'm on. So let, let's see what it looks like in a few years time. If you are enjoying listening to this episode, can you do me a huge favor, follow the podcast. It really helps us grow and it tells the apps that's the podcast worth listening to. You can do that in Apple Podcasts by clicking on those three dots in the top right of your app. Look out for the follow button and just click on it. If you're listening on Spotify, the follow button should be just below the show's artwork. You can click on that and you can follow that. We really appreciate you supporting Everyday Leadership. And how do you define leadership? Leadership. So to me, to be a leader, you need to inspire people to be the best version of themselves that they can be. You need to 
motivate people, but also allow space for people to turn up and be their best self and want to contribute and do the best that they can do in such a way that when you remove yourself from the equation or the space, they can continue to go because they are inspired and they're bought in and they want to turn up and and just do good things, right? So for me, leadership is about realizing how to tap into people's potential, to inspire them, to turn up and be great and continue to be great even when you've removed yourself from the equation. And this is something that you actually do really well. One thing there, like Chanel, very real and authentic. Like you've heard her story, you hear her sharing. But even how you just describe leadership, I was laughing in my head. I'm like, you know, you're describing a lot of what, <laughs> a lot of what you do, a lot of how you show up, and a lot of how people actually experience you. And so it's quite good to actually hear that and to be able to realign the like, that's that's a fact that other people can even attest to as well. Because there's not a lot of spaces where you have authentic leaders. So it's it's always a pleasure to, to see people who are being authentic and role modeling the right behaviors and whether they're approaching. And people who are going after their life mission, no matter how big it might feel, we need more and more people like you who are just, I forget the world, I'm doing me. And along with you doing you, other people are blessed. So thank you for that. And thank you for sharing your story today. I'm sure you remember this, but I'm sure it was two years ago, two or three years ago. I was like, we're going to talk. And you told me, I, I don't want to do that. I'm not, I'm not ready. I don't want to. I was like, don't worry. When the time is right, when the time is right, we will talk. On that. <laughs> and here we are. <laughs> I know. It's, yeah. And, and this is why I say, like, at the time, you, you may not know, but it's going to happen the way it's supposed to happen, right? And this is an example of it. Oh, wow. Thank you. Appreciate you. All the information about Chanel, about her organization that she runs, anything that you know about her, all that's going to be in the show notes. You can definitely tap more and more into that knowledge and that life-changing, much-needed mission that she's going after. This is Erida Leadership, and we'll see you next week. Here's a quick preview of who we've got coming up in next week's episode. Make sure you're following the show so you don't miss out on this amazing guest. I had this job and I just walked away and didn't have anything lined up. But I think that moment taught me a lot about myself. One thing I do during the week is I go for a run. And most days after each run, I upload a video on LinkedIn. Normally about two or three minutes. So if you want to get a little bit-sized information as to what's going on in my head after that run, check me out on LinkedIn. Just type in my name, S-O-P-E-A-G-B-E-L-U-S-I, and you'll find me. And you can tap into some more content outside of everyday leadership.